We are in the book of Philippians. If you're visiting with us today, or if you're like me and you've been gone for two weeks and can't remember what we're preaching through, that's where we are, Philippians. And uh, I thought it would be good maybe even just uh, since we're camping out in Philippians chapter 2, I believe the text is also right there in your bulletin if you want to follow along with that. But maybe just some questions that will help orient us this morning. Is there something in your life that you wish you could fix right now? You know, you could just push a button and just fix that thing. Uh, is there something in someone else's life you wish you could fix uh, and just could push that button? Are, are there people close to you that would say you struggle with anger? Or maybe you struggle with anxiety? Or what about your love for others? Is, is your love for others kind of like money? You're willing to share some of it, but it better be a worthy cause before you part with it. Well, I want to suggest to you today that there is one trait, one human trait, more than any other trait that I could name, more than love, more than hope, more than integrity, there is one trait above all others that can increase our capacity to suffer in such a way that we can have contentment or peace when we encounter things in life that we can't fix. There's one trait more than any other that can quiet an angry and anxious heart. There is one trait more than any other that can release within us the limitations that we naturally place in our love for others. It is a trait found only in Jesus Christ, or perhaps more accurately, it's found only for those who are, to use the Bible's language, in Christ. And I'm speaking about the trait of humility. And this trait of humility, if I could put it this way, is today's our Sunday, our Advent Sunday of joy. This is the prelude to joy. It's more than just a prerequisite. In other words, before there's joy, there's humility. That's the idea here. In fact, I, I would suggest that it's the prelude to almost everything. It's the prelude to love. In Philippians, it's the prelude to unity. I, I've wondered, for example, why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, he, he tells everybody to clothe themselves with humility. In other words, uh, don't just have a humility as one of your traits. Let it be the dominant trait in you. So I think it's almost impossible to overstate how profoundly important this one trait is. And so yet again, this Sunday, two weeks ago, we talked about it. We're going to talk about it again. So let me pray for us this morning, and let's get underway.
Our Father, this is your word that we're about to listen to. You're in this very room speaking to us words unlike any other words. So would you bless us, every single one of us that is listening, with ears to hear. We are not here, myself included, by accident, but by your design for your purposes. So be the king with authority in our life right now. For Jesus' sake, we pray it. Amen. All right, we're jumping right into Philippians 2 here. Uh, and I want to talk about your superpower today. Everybody's kind of into that. You know, what's your superpower? Uh, and so here in this little text, I want you to notice two things here. It starts out, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort, etc. And then just a few verses later in verse 5, it says this, have this mind, in other words, this way of looking at things that regulates your responses, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This belongs to you. If you belong to Jesus, all of these things are inside of you. But this superpower needs to be activated. It can sit there dormant at times. And so as, as, we, as we read even um, verse, uh, verse 1 there, you could, you could change it this way. Because there is in Christ encouragement, because there's comfort in the love of Christ that's in you, because there's participation in the Spirit, that's how we should read those first couple of verses. All of these descriptors in that first verse there are ways of simply saying in different ways the same thing, and that is, are you an other-centered person? Christ is an other-centered person. These are all other-centered actions. And so the writer of this little letter to this group of believers in a Roman colony called Philippi, he says that uh, since there's all these things in Christ, verse 2, I want you to do something. I want you to complete my joy. I want you to complete my joy. In other words, I want you to make... What I'm, what I'm seeing in you in bud form, I want you to make it blossom. I want my anticipation to come true. I see in you the bud of all that's in Christ, and, and I'm anticipating that bud blossoming in the way that you interact with each other. And then notice these words in verse 2. The same mind, the same love, being in accord full accord and of one mind. In other words, Philippi, Philippians, believers in Jesus Christ, this, what I'm about to talk to you about, this is what you should be known for. This is what should be, this should be the DNA of your community. This should be the air that you breathe. And so Paul lays this out in these first couple of verses here. And then in verses three through four, he tells us what humility looks like, and in verses 6 through 8, he tells us how to activate it. I would say this, that th verses 3 and 4 flow out of verses 6 through 8. And uh, so, if you're around next week, we'll talk about verses 6 through 8, but today we're barely going to get through 3 for, through 4. Again, I don't apologize. I think this is worthy of us settling down in here. I think it's a perfect 
Christmas theme uh, that puts us in this place in this book of Philippians as we're making our way through. And today, I really just want us to look at three phrases. I'm going to start with this first one, this little phrase, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In a word, you could put those two words together, selfish ambition and conceit, and it basically is a, an elaborated way of talking about pride, okay? And pride at, the, at, at its very heart, pride is the absolute opposite of humility. Pride is the same thing that happened to our very first parents. Pride at its very heart is independence from God. It's changing, it's exchanging the wonder of a God-exalting world for something that initially looks very attractive, a me-exalting world, but turns out to be a very weary and wretched world. <laughs> but we're constantly doing that. We're giving up on the wonder of a God-centered world for the weariness and wretchedness of a me-centered world. In fact, C.S. Lewis uh, says that uh, pride is so deeply ingrained in the human nature and so deceptive that the devil loves to take a massive problem like, say, alcoholism and cure it so that he can leave behind a much worse problem of undetected human pride in overcoming it. And he does that to us all the time. This is why, quite frequently, God doesn't answer some of our prayers. Some of the most agonizing cries to God. Even for something that we would think makes so much sense to God if he would answer it. Let's take, for example, the guy who wrote this letter. His name was Paul. Did you know that at one point, Paul had a very unique human experience. He actually saw into heaven itself. You could call this a near-death experience, but that would be to cheapen it. It was something much more real, much more supernatural. And by the way, he didn't sell books after it. But he had this revelation of God. It was, it was vast. He saw all that God had in store for him. Perhaps it happened after one of the times he got stoned to death. But then we read, interestingly, that there was a problem. He says, to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing nature of these revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to keep me from what? Becoming conceited. I mean, we're not talking about an immature Christian here who has this problem. By the way, I... It's a little frustrating sometimes the way theologians get hung up on trying to figure out what the thorn in the flesh was here. It's utterly irrelevant. The point is not what it was, but why it was. Paul had such an amazing experience with God that there was still a part of him, even though he was in Christ, that would have taken that amazing experience and turned it into a sideshow or whatever it was, he would have become conceited. And so God had to give him a thorn in the flesh, and God kept that thorn in his flesh for the very purpose of keeping Paul dependent upon himself. I was um, reading a book this week. Uh, interestingly, it's called Corruptible. 
It's not written by a Christian. It's just an interesting book about what happens when people get power. Why are people drawn to power? I didn't expect this to happen as I was, I was not intending to connect this to Philippians. But this guy tells the story about this desert tribe in, in Africa that is still, unlike other countries around, it has not modernized. It continues to have these prehistoric ways of life. And one of the things that happens is when it sends out a hunter out to gather meat for the village, uh, especially their young hunters usually, and they come back, and especially if they have a good catch and they bring back uh, meat to the village, the, the villagers gather around and they basically mock the, the, what, what this young hunter has brought back. They, they ridicule him, basically. And uh, there was an anthropologist that uh, interviewed these guys back in the 70s, and, and said, why do you do this? this? What a strange ritual this is that they've carried on for uh, many, many generations. This is what they said. When a young man kills much meat, he comes to think of himself as a chief or a big man. And he thinks of the rest of us as servants, our inferiors. We can't accept this. We refuse one uh, we refuse one who boasts, for someday his pride will make him kill somebody. So we always speak of his meat as worthless. In this way, we cool his heart and make him gentle. They interestingly also have another tradition. They, um, they, uh, the hunter not only gets credit for the kill, but the arrowhead gets credit as well. In other words they actually among themselves swap arrowheads. So you can use someone else's arrowhead and kill a piece of meat, and not only do you get credit for that, but the person's arrowhead gets credit as well, and they do that basically to distribute the power in their tribe. And I'm reminded again of what, uh, what God says to his people in Deuteronomy after he takes them through the desert. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, uh, there is an interesting uh, commentary here uh, right toward the end of the time. Now, you might remember, those of you who know the story of Israel, that uh, they wandered in the desert for 40 years because uh, they didn't believe God could take care of their enemies. And so that whole generation dies off. And now they're coming finally to cross into the promised land. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, uh, it says, The whole commandment, this is God speaking to him, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, and that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Now, as you go in to possess that land, I want you to remember something. I want you to remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness as Moses is speaking to him. I want you to remember that he did this that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. By the way, God did not need to know what was in their heart. They needed to know what was in their heart. Whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you. How did he do that? He let you hunger. He fed you with manna. You got, you, you got to the point where you couldn't get food for yourself. God drove you to that point to show you that he could supply he gave you manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Over and over and over, 
this Word of God tells us that we have a systemic, natural problem with pride. And even with Christ Almighty and His Spirit reigning in us, it still requires at times a thorn in the flesh to keep us from getting puffed up. That's why I think it's interesting in Philippians it says, do nothing, do nothing. That word nothing is uh, basically a call for zero tolerance, constant self-suspicion. I was walking through an airport last, uh, last week, and uh, I got off, and all these people were standing around waiting to get on uh, all these different planes. And I just happened to notice, uh, wasn't even looking for this, but almost everybody in, that I could see was doing this. I mean, you know what they were doing, right? Uh, and, uh, and then I began to just walk through the rest of the entire airport. And anytime someone was not in motion, sometimes even when they were, they were doing that. And I just thought, what a selfie world we live in. You know, we're all just preoccupied with whatever's going on right in front of us, oblivious to everything else. I hadn't gotten out of the airport before this thought hit me. And what were you doing, Rick? I was feeling superior to everyone that was doing that. Wow. It's everywhere. It, re it disguises itself all the time, which is why humility, which is why humility is so radically unnatural. I love, that's why this Dick's phrase is so helpful. Count others more significant than yourselves. Do you want to know how that could be translated? Count others as superior to yourself. It's the same actual word used in Romans 13, verse 1, about governing authorities. Treat everyone as a governing authority over you. Now just think about that for a moment. That's not exactly a popular idea. It doesn't mean that everyone is superior to you morally. It's not what it's saying. It doesn't mean that everyone else around you is better than you, that, you should, you, that they have a superior value to you. It's about how you act toward others. You should act toward everyone else in your life as though they are in a better station. They are above you. They have a higher status than you. Stephen Fowle, who writes a great commentary on Philippians, says that in Paul's world, humility was the feature of only one category, slaves. In fact, if people of higher status acted in humility toward others lower than them, it was the beginning of destabilizing the entire society. So I want you to understand that what Paul is saying here is politically troublesome to be telling these Christians to act this way. It's dangerously unpopular. It's also contrary to almost every message in our society today. We live in a world of so much self-exalting propaganda that sounds so reasonable to us. We're just so used to it. We hear it all the time. In fact, you know, we're told repeatedly, don't let anybody define you. 
You know what we call those people today? Oppressors. Don't you think of yourself as below anybody? And that message is just everywhere all the time. But humility is something that almost sounds threatening. Surrendering my exaltation for the exaltation of others. And by the way, just to be clear, when I talk about the exaltation of others, I'm not, not talking about people that are ruthless with power of exalting them. I'm speaking about surrendering my exaltation for the exaltation of others in Christ. I'm talking about uh, a kind of Christ-exalting nature of other people. Uh, and you'll, I'll clarify that some more in just a minute. But it's the words of John the Baptist when they came to him and said, you realize this new guy, Jesus, his ministry is, is, is becoming far more popular than yours. In fact, his ministry is becoming more popular at the expense of yours. To which John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. That's what Philippians is encouraging us to do here. It means surrendering our need to be equal. It means surrendering our need to be better than others. It means surrendering our need to be noticed. It means surrendering our need to be seen as important in the eyes of others. It means surrendering our need to be treated in a certain way that we think we deserve. I mean, these are dangerous directives in some ways. Matthew chapter 20 has this interesting um, scene it's getting toward the end of Jesus' ministry. He's been teaching them all these things. And uh, there's 12 apostles and two of them, two of them who are brothers, come up to Jesus. They were probably also, by the way, Jesus' uh, cousins. Uh, and they come up to Jesus, and depending on which uh, gospel you read, it's always kind of a funny thing to think. In one gospel, James and John approach Jesus and say, in your new kingdom... Could we sit on your right and your left? In other words, as you put a cabinet together, could we have the highest positions in the cabinet? Would that be okay with you? In another version, his mother comes up. You don't know if the two boys put the mother to it or the mother put the boys to it, but anyway. Uh, so they ask this question, and Jesus typically, like he does, he responds with a question. Do you really know what you're asking? Of course, they didn't. Uh, but then it goes on just a couple lines later, and it says, and the other 10, the other 10 were rejoicing that these two guys could be exalted. And some of you are laughing because you know the story, right? I don't, I, don't, I don't need to be above you, but don't you dare be above me. You know, that's, they, they became indignant. These other 10 became angry, mostly probably because they thought, why didn't I think of that first? And these were the apostles. Here is self-promotion at the expense of family unity. In Matthew 20, it's self-promotion at the expense of family unity. Have you ever been a parent? Have you ever been a child? I'm assuming I got everybody in those two. Um, or maybe a sibling. Not everybody's a sibling. If you've been a parent, a child, or a sibling, or a spouse, you have power. By the way, if you don't think children have power, I have seen one child ruin an entire family vacation. I'm not naming children. <laughs> uh, but you have power. But 
isn't it interesting how difficult it is to share that power? Isn't it interesting how difficult it is to actually surrender that power and let someone else have your power and more? That's what humility begs us to do. This really is our highest assignment. And here's the thing. We are the only people on the planet, we who belong to Christ, are the only people on the planet who have the supernatural power to do this. It is our highest honor to serve this humble king no matter what the assignment and no matter how low and humiliating and unrewarding the assignment is. After all, Robin read the passage this morning in John chapter 13. In fact, look at Philippians 2. We're going to get there eventually. Verse 7, Jesus came and did what? He took on the form of a slave. He took the lowest conceivable status in society at the time. He took on the form of a slave. But Jesus didn't just surrender his status and descend to us. Jesus, think about this, Jesus descended below us. He didn't just come to be one of us. He came to be our servant. He came to wash our feet. He came to be our ransom. In fact, I'm struck by John 13. I've always marveled at that passage. Jesus, knowing it was his hour and knowing that everything was right between him and the Father, got up and washed their disciples' feet. You couldn't do one without the other. It was the fact that Jesus was so yielded to the Father, so ready to accept his assignment no matter what. Only that enabled him to have the humility to get up and serve these guys who should have been washing Jesus' feet. It was an hour when, if ever there was a legitimate reason for Jesus to be completely self-centered, it was at that Last Supper when he was in agony. And yet he is the one continuing to minister and teach these disciples. So, count others as more significant than yourselves. Finally, look. let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. And I think it's a, this is one of those passages where in the Bible there's just a couple words here, mostly the word only and but also, that changes everything here. This is the beautiful nature of the wisdom of Scripture. It's always nuanced. It, it, it says one thing, but it's careful not to say something else. Here's what I mean by that. For some of you, probably not for most of you, but for some of you, looking out for your own interest, but also, because the problem isn't look, the evil here, it's not sinful to look out for your own interest. Can I just go on record and say that? That's what the Bible says. It is not sinful to look out for your own interest. It's sinful to look out for your own interest only. So every time you look out for your interest, you have to put the but also into it, and that's what makes it wise. So for some of you, looking out for your own interest but also others means standing up to others. It means disappointing others, and that is going to cost you. It would be very tempting in those situations 
especially if you're suffering abuse, it would be very tempting in those situations to look out for your own interest and not do something that's going to upset the apple cart. Not do something that's going to cause someone to hate you. Not do something that's going to cause hurt to someone else. But in that situation, you're actually looking out for your own interest and not also others who sometimes require us to stand up to them. Now, for most of us, though, I think this is a place where we need to pause and pray. I think for, for most of us, and, we're, and I'm talking here just like Paul does, he's talking about the kind of relationships you have with other people in the local body of Christ the kind of relationships you have with other believers. Uh, just think about this for a moment. Are there, is there low-level tension that you have with another believer? Is there some kind of uh, tendency where you, just, you don't even go there? You don't even pursue that relationship? You just keep your distance? Someone you disagree with? Someone who doesn't meet your expectations? I mean, I will say being away from this church reminds me again of being in another church last Sunday reminds me again of how exceptionally healthy this church is, but I don't want to take that for granted for just a second. Churches are being divided all over this country right now over things that should not matter, but matter way too much to people. And so we need to ask a question right here. If I'm dealing with some kind of power struggle or some tension with someone else, am I only looking at life from my perspective? Am I only looking at the situation from my perspective? And the answer is probably. Is there any sympathy in Christ? Yes, there is. Well, then tap into it, activate it. You know, it's so much easier to judge out of such ignorance than it is to labor to get inside the skin of another and see life from their perspective and once you do, things that make no sense at all to you suddenly start making a lot of sense to you. One example. I was in Haiti a number of years ago. I've, I've been in a handful of countries in my life. I've never been in a country that was so difficult to be in I couldn't wait to get out of there. So emotionally heavy watching all of this suffering all around me all the time. Listening to stories of teenage girls who gave themselves to prostitution in large, large numbers. Even Christian homes where that happened. And then working to get inside of their skin and realize it made perfect sense why they would do that. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not endorsing it. I'm just telling you that I get it. I get why that may be their only way out and a lesser evil than the one they're dealing with. I've been around this church long enough to know that just like you know me, those of you who've been around, you know my uh, ugly sides, my dark sides. So can I just gently share a couple of ours where we're vulnerable? We have some, a lot of educated people in this church, more than the average church. Uh, and there are tendencies to look at people less educated in a way that makes them feel inferior, and you're not even aware you're doing it. And by the way, those of you who have less education tend to judge those people who have more education and how they're interacting with you. 
It's the same with money. It's the same how we think about certain issues like race. It's the same how we think about people who struggle with sexual control. When we maybe don't struggle with that, but we do with other things. Are people who struggle with sexual identity in this congregation and the way that we process that are the way some people deal with some pretty serious doubts in Christianity and how we, uh, how we don't necessarily get inside of their skin when, we, when they have those doubts. And the list could go on and on. So I mostly just want us to see that we should hate this pride that is in us, not hate ourselves for having it. We should hate the pride that is in us. And at the same time, in a selfie, selfie kind of world that we live in, we should crave, we should crave the stunning beauty of humility. Let me give you a typical long-winded definition of mine here on humility. <laughs> and you can chew on this as we get ready to take bread and cup this morning. I think humility, like nothing else, can quiet an angry and anxious heart. I think it does that by causing us to give something up. Outcomes that we want to control, a reputation, even responsibilities for things we can't fix. To the superior wisdom of God who's right here, right now, good, present, active. And while we do that, it actually increases our capacity to suffer to live in a world where we're not as powerful as we think we are. And it gives us the ability to, to give up things that we think we can't live without. And when we do that, strangely enough, this is what humility does. It actually energizes obedience because we're no longer trying to hold our life together. We're yielding to whatever God wants. And we're looking not at this world to give us what we need, but we're confidently anticipating the world to come, just like Jesus in Hebrews chapter 12. It was the joy set before him that allowed it to him to endure the present. So I want you to take a moment, think about that while those serving communion and the worship team come forward. And then I would just want to give you a thought as to how you can come and take community today. A couple words of instruction if you happen to be visiting with us today or just good to repeat this for even those of you who are regulars. This table of the body and blood of Christ is open to anybody that calls Jesus their Savior, the one who they need to continually keep uh, canceling out their sin, and their King, the one who rules over their pride. Uh, so you can come this morning, come up the center aisle, and then I'll lead us in a few moments, taking it all together. In John chapter 12, right before John 13, did you know that John 12 comes right before John 13? It's funny how that works. So right before he gets up and washes the feet, he says something to them a little before. In fact, the implication is they didn't even get it till much later. He, he uses a little agricultural illustration he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it will not bear fruit. And then he says, there's an alternative to that. You can keep loving your life, 
You can keep self-promoting, but in the end, you'll lose your life. So really, as we come this morning today, I would encourage you as you take bread and cup, let this be the place where you die. In a sense, every week we take bread and cup. We are leaving ourselves here on all our pride that doesn't surprise Jesus, and we, we are bearing our lives in Christ. We are letting them die so that they might bear fruit in the exaltation of others. Melissa Kruger has a commentary on Philippians, and these are just a couple questions I thought were super helpful to think about as you sort of allow these questions to maybe release some of that pride in you so that humility can flourish as you take a bread and cup today. Let's take a moment, think about that, and then Dennis will come up and lead us.